Welcome back to Dear Old State, the Athletics Penn State podcast. I am Athletic College Football Editor Matt Brown, joined by Penn State writer Audrey Snyder. Audrey, I'm glad you are here and you know you haven't gone into a cave after the, the Packers loss. I'm sorry to bring it up. There was a game Sunday, Matt. I uh, Welcome to the offseason, right? It's uh, officially <laughs> late January for Penn State, offseason-wise. Uh, officially the offseason for the Packers after that abomination that was the NFC title game. Um, apologies to anyone who was hoping to actually see a good game on Sunday. If you had no rooting interest, you certainly didn't even get that. Um, but in the like pantheon of Packer playoff defeats, Matt, as I hear a bunch of our listeners now, clicking off and finding other shows. Uh, this was one of the easiest ones to take because they just got it handed to him from the get-go. So it wasn't, there was no late game letdown or anything. It was like, well, you just got your ass kicked. Okay, you know. Um, but That about sums it up. <laughs> yeah, that, so that sums up uh, the NFL, and we'll see what happens with the Super Bowl in a few weeks, which, by the way, Matt, I'm tying this all back around, quite a few former Nittany Lions That's are going to have a shot that in the Super true. Bowl. That's uh, We have five of them, I believe? I believe so, yes. I believe it's five. Um, and I had forgotten Anthony Zettel is a member of the 49ers. So that was uh, kind of something that I forgot about. You got Stefan Wisniewski with the Chiefs. You have Jordan Lucas with the Chiefs. Uh, so there are quite a few guys. Robbie Gold, that, Kevin Givens. I yeah, that's, yep. Yeah. Yep, Kevin Givens, was, uh, he was inactive on uh, on Sunday for the game. But pretty pretty nice story for him. You know, you consider this as a guy who left early and it was like oh should he go should he not go um doesn't get drafted then is able to hang around uh, with the 49ers now he has a shot to be a part of a team that wins a super bowl so that'll be Seven interesting Wisniewski could win a second super bowl in three years i was pretty gonna good, say he's, a little run there <laughs> yeah that's a, that's a nice little landing spot for him uh so that'll be you know penn state always has some rooting interests in that so I guess uh, I don't know what their streak is, Matt. I know like the PIAA had some ridiculous streak a few years ago that was like every every Super Bowl had somebody from the Big Thirty Three in it for yeah, X yeah, amount of years. Yeah. I don't know if that ended or not, but I just I remember that was like a crazy thing. But yeah, Penn State certainly with it with a nice little uh, little shot here to get get some former football player a ring. Well. So this week on The Athletic, as we do move toward 2020, it is our depth chart week. The National Championship's in the rearview mirror. So we have like 40 depth charts already up, projections for 2020 with a lot of the teams that we cover, or all the teams that we cover specifically, um, and some others. And of course, Audrey did the Penn State depth charts. Uh, the We are recording this on Tuesday. The offense is already up. The defense will be up Wednesday. So during the show, we are going to talk about the offense We'll talk about the defense next week. But first, let's get into, of course, the news that has happened last week. Uh, last week, we recorded our podcast on Tuesday morning. We did that before some uh, unfortunate news came out. Um, we're not going to dive into it too deep here, but uh, former player Isaiah Humphreys filed a lawsuit against Penn State, against James Franklin, and against defensive tackle Damian Barber. Uh, Audrey, you wrote an article mm-hmm. that kind of just summarizes the basic news. We're not going to sit here yeah. and speculate and pontificate about it but uh why don't we just break down the very very basic news here for everybody yeah so basically you know isaiah humphreys came here i'm sure penn state people if you're listening to this you'd know who he is but i'm sure you're also aware that it's leonard humphreys son so came here as a legacy was on scholarship and he's alleging in his lawsuit uh, that essentially he was bullied and hazed in the locker room at the hands of damian barber but he also mentioned that there were three ringleaders in this suit. Now, 
I think it's really, really important for people to understand that just because Micah Parsons, former defensive end at Penn State, Ito Gross Matos, uh, and Jesse Lucchetta were named as ringleaders, they're not named as defendants in the suit. So they're not being sued. Uh, however, um, you know, he, he's alleging, Humphreys is alleging that he was hazed and bullied and that essentially he told James Franklin about this and that Franklin didn't do anything about it. Now, Penn State already did a university investigation on this because this was, if you think back to last spring, there was a text notification that came out about something, it was very cryptically worded, but something happening in the Lash building. And that is all related to this. So Penn State did an internal report, which was handled by the Office of Sexual Misconduct. Uh, And in that report, which apparently a 75-page document from what I've been told by Humphrey's attorney, but that document has not been made public. But I guess, Matt, there's so many interesting and bizarre parts to this. And, you know, criminally, this is something where people are saying, well, this has already been looked at. It was nothing. The university deemed that this was something that they would handle in terms of the, the code of conduct. Now, Damian Barber had admitted to doing something, something that violated the code of conduct. Now, however minor or major that may be, it's unclear. But there was something seemingly minor uh, that happened with the code of conduct, which they said he would be sanctioned by the university. Now, assuming, Matt, that was the one-game suspension that he served for the season opener against Idaho, uh, but you can never be sure. And this is where I always side note here, but this is what I think makes our job so difficult when you don't distinguish whether a player is suspended or they're hurt, it really makes these lines blurred and difficult to try and figure out. Um, right. Was this maybe why Ito Gross Matos was sent home last summer? I don't know, uh, because James Franklin never acknowledged why that happened. So, you know, you have all these kind of questions that you're trying to piece together. But again, this isn't something that can or should be settled in the court of public opinion. You know, this is where you let the lawyers do their jobs. Um, You know, I understand seeing the response on Twitter, several Penn State players came out and essentially said that they felt this was a cash grab or that Humphreys was trouble while he was here, Um, which, Matt, I I know this isn't a legal podcast and we're not here to talk strategy, but um, I am very surprised that no one in the Penn State football building said to these current players, do not tweet about this. Um, to me, that is not helping your case at all. It is a little bit surprising, for sure. Uh, like, to me, that was one of the most jarring things when you look at this is whoever's running this thing over there, you need to say to these kids, listen, I, you know, it's great that you want to defend your program and this and that, but this is a case where you're dealing with a culture, you know, um, culture, I use that phrase loosely, but of bullying and harassment. It doesn't look good when you then have current players come out and essentially say, well, this, you know, this kid's a liar, this and that. Um, so I don't know what comes of this. I don't know what happens next. I have not seen an attorney listed for Damian Barber yet or for James Franklin. Uh, it was also worth mentioning. This is the same attorney who was representing Scott Lynch, the former Penn State doctor. Uh, so we will see, but that was definitely the kind of where in the world did this come from outer right field story so far of the offseason. I know people want to point to Humphrey's tweet when he transferred where he said he was happy here and this and that. Um, again, just me playing devil's advocate here. Kids, when they leave schools, don't go and bash their former school. Like, you usually don't see that happen. 
Um, so even if he had a terrible experience or if any of this is legit, I don't know. But I don't think that a kid would then tweet that. So who knows, Matt? This is something we'll continue to keep an eye on. I'll continue to be working on it in the background while doing a bunch of other things. Um, but we didn't want to not, you know, mention the elephant in the room this week. Yeah, for sure. So then there was more news coming out uh, on Sunday. Penn State, of course, needed to hire a new wide receivers coach with Jared Parker going to West Virginia as offensive coordinator. And Penn State did do that in a uh, familiar name, at least for people who paid attention to college football in the early 2000s. Penn State hired Taylor Stubblefield, the former Purdue receiver, who, if you look at his... uh, well, he's at least somebody who, as a player, did not have trouble mm-hmm. catching the ball. He's the big all-time Big Ten leader in catches. Had 325 catches from 2001 to 2004, kind of right after the Drew Brees era. Uh, so had a very, very, very prolific career, including 1,000 yards and 16 touchdowns in 2004. He was just part of that run of receivers that Joe Tiller had at Purdue. Uh, but his coaching career has been, I don't know what the right word is, meandering? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think that sounds good, Matt. Uh, yeah, so he's at he after some brief pro football he played in the NFL, played in the CFL. wasn't Despite his production in college, wasn't drafted. He's been at Central Washington. So this is all since 2007. Central Washington for one year, Eastern Michigan for one year, Illinois State for two years, Central Michigan for one year, New Mexico for one year, Wake Forest for one year, Utah for two years, the Toronto Argonauts of the CFL for one year. Air Force for two years, and he spent last year at Miami, and now he is at Penn State. So he's not been anywhere as a coach longer than two years, which I guess maybe raises some alarm bells just because Penn State is on its fourth receivers coach in four years. Yeah, and that to me, Matt, you know, this is something where you look at it and you say, well, you know, why in the world have they had so many receivers coaches, right? Like, what's been the issue here? Because I think when people from the outside at least see this, they say, well, something must be wrong that you've had this many receiver coaches, but it's not that. I mean, this is a matter of, you know, going back, you had Josh Gaddis, kind of viewed as a young rising star, then leaves to take a job at Alabama. Um, James Franklin would like to probably contend that it was a lateral move. I will argue that it was not. So then you have that. Then you go on, excuse me, you go on from there to David Corley. Clearly that just was a bad fit, didn't work out, brought him into coach one position group, switched him over to receivers. That was a mess. Then you go from there, Jared Parker. uh, I think Parker has a really bright future ahead of him, and I'm sure this is probably not what Penn State fans want to hear right now. Uh, But, again, this is a promotion for Parker, for him to get a shot to be an OC at West Virginia. Everybody who I had talked to, Matt, about Jared Parker, about his background, about his ability as a recruiter, about – his desire to connect with his players, um, people raved about the guy. They raved about the way that he taught as well. I remember talking with, um, going back, I did a story on sports psychology during the season and talking with Penn State's in-house sports psychologist. And he said, man, he said, I'm just so impressed with how Jared Parker teaches concepts to the receivers and how, you know, he just, if somebody's not getting something, he figures out ways to teach them, to motivate them. So again, that's a significant loss, but it's also a reality of college football. But I guess to me where this move gets interesting, one, that it's announced on a Sunday afternoon, Matt. Do we not have any clue how the news cycle works around here? Um, You're I, just mad because the Packers were about to kick off yes, in a couple hours Yes, it, was, uh, it seems like all of the big news so far this offseason has happened on like Fridays and Sundays, which is so bizarre. Um, but that's, I guess, just how it is sometimes. So. You look at, you mentioned the playing background. Uh, that certainly gives him some credibility with players. And, 
you know, I know that's something that Josh Gaddis, you know, he had, what do you like to say? He had a cup of coffee in the NFL, um, but that still gave him some credibility with the players. So very curious to see what kind of recruiter that they're getting with the new hire, um, because that's where I think Parker really had part of why he excelled was his ability to do that. And, um, we don't really know much because he hasn't been right. anywhere longer than a year or two. So. And you look at, you say, okay, geographically, what kind of region is he going to recruit? Well, when you're recruiting at Miami and you're recruiting receivers especially, like that's a different ball game. I mean, you're recruiting kids to Miami, typically from Miami. Uh, so, you know, I think we have to really kind of see what his deal is as a recruiter. But as we record this on Tuesday, Matt, it's also worth mentioning that None of Penn State's three new hires, so that's Kirk Shiraka, that's Phil Troutwine, the offensive line coach, um, and that's another receivers coach. None of these guys have been formally introduced yet to the media, so we still don't know in terms of recruiting territories or what statistics does Shiraka value most, what does he want to change, what does Troutwine think of this offensive line, all these things. Uh, at some point this offseason, they're going to have to get answered, Matt. I don't know if it happens in January or do they wait till February to introduce these guys? I'm not sure. Uh, but that's cer- certainly something that pretty notable that has to be coming down the pipe here. Yeah. And well, our producer Mike weighed in before we started uh, this recording here and he is a Miami fan and said, expressed some displeasure with the uh, <laughs> performance of the receivers last year at Miami, but that was basically the entire Miami offense as well. So not necessarily a great year for Stubblefield last year, but then again, pretty much nobody on the Miami staff had a great year last year. Yeah. So I don't know how much we can put on him, but he has also one of the most interesting jobs this year because I think this is our transition to the <laughs> Penn State offense depth chart. And who boy, uh, yeah. You know, as expected, the offense is returning most of its talent, but mm-hmm. the one group that is just a glaring problem, or at least question, we don't want to challenge call it a James Franklin likes challenge, to use the challenge. 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 <laughs> is the wide receiver course. I think we can kind of start there with our depth chart projection. Again, this is up on The Athletic. If you're not a subscriber, this is kind of an early preview of our 2020 content to come, all these depth chart projections. Audrey goes pretty deep into the Penn State offense. Again, the defense will be up Wednesday and special teams. And so the offense, basically, there's. I feel like there's one obvious slam dunk starter, one probable starter, one complete mystery. And the slam dunk starter would be Jahan Dotson. Yeah. He's coming back from a pretty solid year, uh, his first year as a starter, where he was overshadowed by Hamler, overshadowed by Pat Frymuth. Still caught 27 balls for 488 yards, average 18 yards per catch, had five touchdowns, showed plenty of promise. He's going to be a starter. Yeah. Then you move on to, okay, Justin Shorter is gone. Mm-hmm. And it's, okay, well, Daniel George replaced him the last two games. He kind of fits that role as that big-bodied receiver kind of on his own on one side of the field. Um, he's the inside track to start there. And then who is K.J. Hamler's replacement? <laughs> you put Matt Kippenhammer because he was technically K.J. Hamler's backup. But I think if you'd ask both of us, though, what are the chances he's the starter for the full season, let alone opening day? I have my doubts. Yeah, I, and I think we're right about that, Matt. I mean, I think – you look at this, and, and I guess a disclaimer here about these depth charts. So what I try to do when I do these, like I'm not just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks. It's looking not only at what we saw last year, but also going back and looking at some of the things that we saw in practices last year, things that we can't right. come out and report, 
But, for example, when we do the defense and special teams one, it's important that I was able to go back from practice last year and say, hmm, remember that one day where we saw punt returners? Who were the guys back there wearing the boxing gloves, you know, that returned that could be options? Or things like watching warm-ups and, okay, you know, who were the centers lining up snapping to these guys in warm-ups? These kinds of things. So, again, these aren't just crazy out-of-right-field type things, but Hippenhammer was listed as Hamler's... uh, you know, as his backup on the depth chart. But, I mean, Matt, we're talking about a guy who caught one pass last year. I mean, this is something where I'm very curious, and I think this maybe will tell us what we need to know about this, at least about his spot. Uh, If Hippenhammer is still part of the baseball team this year, I'm not sure. Because I guess here's my question with that, Matt. He's on scholarship with football, but the understanding has always been that he came here, he wanted to do both, and James Franklin was willing to let him do both. Mac loves playing baseball is what they kept telling us. Well, I would find it very difficult to believe that he would be missing spring ball if he's a projected starting receiver to be playing baseball when he's on It's not even only a projected starting receiver. It's a guy, though, who's trying to compete for that role. If you're going to put yourself in the best position possible to be a starter on the football team... um, I, I'm very curious to see what happens with that. So I don't know what the plan is with that. Um, but again, I think that might tell us a little bit because if you're, you know, the receivers coach, if you're James Franklin, if you're even Sean Clifford, um, you want, you know, you want your guy who's on scholarship with your team to be there. But again, this was always the agreement. You know, you recruited this kid with the understanding that he could do both. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what they do with that. Um, But you mentioned Daniel George, Matt, and the thing with him is, and I think probably the thing that's really glaring when you look at this receiving core, they need that big-bodied receiver who can go up, who can high-point balls, and that's something that they haven't had. You know, they thought they were going to have it with Jawan Johnson. They didn't have it. They thought they'd have it with Justin Shorter. They didn't have it. Um, You know, they thought way back when they'd have it with Irv Charles. That didn't happen. So now you look at Daniel George, and he's going to have to be that guy and if he isn't, then I think that's where it gets a little more interesting. And maybe that's where a TJ Jones, who is pretty built, when you, you know, when you look at him, I remember having a conversation with his high school coach, must have been last winter. And he went um, to the same high school in, I believe, Lake City, Florida, which was uh, Laramie Tunsil, the same high school as him. So uh, just random connections, Matt. I'm full of useless information most days. That's one of them. <laughs> But I remember his coach telling me that, you know, they really, really believe that TJ Jones is a special talent, that he's somebody the coach said, listen, you know, he played, the coach played football. He said, I I know what I'm looking at when I'm looking at talented receivers, like this guy's going to be good. So maybe he's somebody who factors in. Um, I still, since, you know, we know that I have my things for picking freshman running backs, I guess, Matt, this is going to be my thing for 2020. I think Keandre Lambert is still going to be really, really good. And maybe we see it next year. I don't, I mean, who knows? Because of all the unknowns in this receiving core, I think Lambert is a guy who can help this team in some capacity. But Matt, I don't, I'm very curious to, when we look back at this at the end of next year and say, boy, how close was our depth chart prediction? Um, how far off were we? Because to me, this is the one position group where it is like, we, really have no clue what's going to happen. And the other thing is, you know, like Hippenhammer really didn't get a chance this year and mm-hmm. for a couple of reasons. One, well, well, 
we just we haven't really seen him you know any at, perform at a high level yet yeah but two it's Hamler didn't come off the field really like you know it's one thing you know George and Shorter would rotate and whatever and neither really got into the flow of the game ever Hamler was always on the field um so I don't know. I, I think the freshmen, there's certainly an opportunity. Hip and Hammer only had seven targets. We didn't mention Cam Sullivan Brown, who's a guy hurt. who yep. who had five catches in that Maryland blowout, kind of, you know, coming off the bench, had five catches, and then we didn't see him the rest of the year. Daniel George wasn't 100% healthy for a portion of the year. Uh, you know, I think you mentioned Keandre Lambert. It makes sense. He is the best rated recruit or receiver mm-hmm. recruit that they brought in this year. Uh, you know, I think a wild card here who's not enrolled early, but Parker Washington, yes, the four-star receiver from Texas, is a guy who kind of, you know, I think he was a three-star maybe he's, when he committed. He's but he, Hamler-esque. He got a four-star. Hamler-esque. He's 5'10", yeah. 201, so he's built a little bit mm-hmm. and is kind of projects as a, maybe a slot-type receiver. So I think even though he's not going to be here until the summer, just kind of a wild card to keep an eye on. You know, it's always hard to predict freshmen, especially when they're not on campus, they're not going through spring practice. But with his body type, with his skill set, if they need a slot type receiver, maybe he's a guy who could eventually get onto the field. I don't know if it's day one, but he's a guy to watch if they don't have uh, somebody who who takes over that role. Um, and also in terms of early playing time, uh, Norval Black from, from Lackawanna Community College, when we look at a JUCO transfer, he's a guy who's the least more experienced a little bit older, you'd think he at least has a chance to get on the field. And I'll add John, John Dunmore to that too, Matt. I mean, you look yeah. at Dunmore, TJ Jones came in together. Uh, both of those guys, I mean, these were highly touted kids who you have to see at this point, you know, where do they kind of shake out? How have they been able to handle the last year? Because um, Dunmore didn't get here till last summer, so he hasn't even been here for a full year yet. This will be his first spring, going through spring drills, that kind of thing, first set of winter workouts. But I mean, he was a four-star receiver, and, you know, coming out of the area that he came out of in South Florida, pretty much in Miami's backyard, you know, this was somebody that Miami really wanted, and it was kind of the, the geographic outlier here that Jaywan Sider had to do some work on to, to get Penn State to land this kid, but... To, I would expect to see him next year. Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I, I feel like one of those two redshirt freshmen will make an impact, and... I mean, Dunmore man, honestly... The, it, the four-star recruit, so I, it I think could he even has a be both. I mean, I mean, I yeah. really, I think... You look at Dunmore and just, again, all we saw from him this year, he redshirted. So we, we did see him in a few games on special teams. Um, you see, you'd see him in practice occasionally. You know, you can tell that physically he's developing, he's maturing that way. But um, I'm very curious to, to pick his brain a little bit and just, you know, kind of see where he's at because he's another guy where we can talk all we want about all these unknowns in this receiving core, but... I mean, these guys are unknown because they haven't, a lot of them haven't had a chance to do it in college. And that's where I think, you know, a guy like a Dunmore could potentially be a little bit of a sleeper. I mean, you look at, and, and I, we both agree here that Jahan Dotson's the one who Penn State knows what they're getting for the most part. Uh, but even look at, if we think back to last year at this time, his development, his progression, um, really it's night and day in a year's time. So you go back to some of these other guys, okay. How much better are they going to be between, you know, January 21st and September? Uh, You know, this is a big, it's a really big window there that you have to work with. And uh, they're certainly going to need these guys uh, to to be productive because this is clearly the one spot when you look at the offense. Um, I'll make the argument, Matt, when you look at the entire team, this is the one position that you say, boy, nobody really knows what's going to happen. And I think the other thing you can look at this year, I mean, 
for the overwhelming majority of the time, their personnel usage is pretty uh, standard. Mm-hmm. They use you know one running back, one tight end, three receivers. We saw a little bit of two tight end stuff last year, but for the most part, uh, it's been eleven personnel with one running back, one tight end. I think you could see them if needed. They could be a little bit more creative. I think you could see a guy like Zach Kuntz is a guy who doesn't even have to be attached to the line. He can be split yeah. out as a, as a slot receiver. Um, or you put Ricky Slade in the slot a little bit. I think they can be a little bit mix up the personnel formationally this year um, if they need it, if they need to. Uh, I think can definitely see two tight ends on the field, even mm-hmm. though Shiraka hasn't used tight ends much in Minnesota. And I, we've talked about Slade before, too, as a guy who they could be a little bit more creative with. Yeah, Shiraka is going to find ways to maximize the talent that they have. And I think you look at what he was able to do at Minnesota uh, with certainly – arguably less talent, certainly less talent at certain spots when you look at it. Um, I fully believe that he is going to find ways to maximize the talent that they have. And you look at that, Matt, and I think you're right. I mean, this, the tight ends are a strength. Pat Fryermuth yeah. is one of the reasons that can kind of help offset this problem at the receiving core, this deficiency, right? So you're going to have Fryermuth, but you've got all these other guys like Koontz, like a Brenton Strange, you know, a Theo Johnson, um, Tyler Warren, I hope you know he'll most likely take a red shirt. I don't think you have to worry about that this year. But Theo Johnson, I do wonder, Matt. I mean, this is somebody again. High school played Canadian rules football, so he, he was used to being in motion. You look at Koontz. I mean, this was an oversized receiver. So you have these athletes, and it's just a matter of scheming up ways to get them in space. And that's where I'm really curious when we get to hear from Sharaka, kind of what he thinks of where this offense is right now. And at least what he wants to tell us in terms of what he wants to change, what he views as some of the strengths. Because, I mean, obviously to to us and I'm sure everyone else, these tight ends are certainly a a highlight. Well, I think, yeah, let's dive into kind of the rest of the depth chart. Receiver is the one that sticks out because we legitimately don't know. We're going to spend the next eight months speculating until we see the team take the field because we just don't know. Uh, And you have the mystery of another wide receivers coach and – bunch of freshmen and a bunch of unproven veterans. It's going to be very interesting to watch because the rest of the offense has very, very, very high potential. And we start, I guess, a quarterback now where we don't expect really a competition. (laughs) You know, I know Will Levis got people excited with what he did against Ohio state. Um, But Sean Clifford had a very nice first year as a starter. He, you know, certainly was inconsistent and had had a little some problems down the stretch i think we could partially chalk that up to being banged up uh yeah. and i think we've talked about maybe they probably shouldn't run him as much especially given the depth at running back but it's pretty clear we have sean clifford you have will levis and then a battle between michael johnson and taekwon roberson and we have no idea what's going to happen there because taekwon roberson threw one pass as a freshman <laughs> and michael johnson threw zero and that's basically all we saw of them yeah, I mean, that's that was the one, you know, the number three spot between those guys. And then, of course, you, know, you get Micah Bowens in there as well, who clearly is in line to take a red shirt. But you look at those two quarterbacks and, you know, Johnson Jr. is a coach's son, which we know that always counts for something in terms of progress and development. Um, Roberson still reminds me a lot of McSorley-esque, kind of with, with that mobility. So... That was a spot where all year James Franklin said, you know, they were going to let these guys compete. Both of them early enrolled last winter. They were going to compete all spring. They were going to compete all summer. They were going to compete throughout the season. And we did see that on these road trips, for the most part, they were bringing both of these guys. So 
I don't think there's much separation there between the two at all. This is going to be an ongoing thing, which also could be interesting, Matt, with the future of that position group because now sure. you've got you know five quarterbacks on scholarship. And if we look too far ahead down the road, if you get Sean Clifford coming back, not this coming season, but the year after that, what does that do for Will Levis? What does that do for Johnson Jr., Roberson? Does that have any any impact on Bowens? Who knows in the world of quarterbacks and the way that works? But I do think, Matt, I'm curious if, and I don't want to go back to the Tommy Stevens package solely, but you saw ways that Joe Moorhead wanted to get the other quarterback involved, right? They wanted to make this big effort to to do the, the lion package, right? Well, I don't know, but maybe is there something that we'll see occasionally with Will Levis to get him in the game? I mean, it was what you saw with him against Ohio State to me was really interesting. You know, I said that in that game, he looked like a battering ram, and that was, you know, this different element to the offense. So maybe you see some plays here and there uh, to try and get Levis involved, and quite frankly, to take away some of the banging from Sean Clifford. You know, that was his legs were more of a pleasant surprise than people thought last year but also it contributed to the wear and tear down the stretch. So they're going to have to find ways to to help Clifford manage that, and I think getting Levis a little bit involved could be one of the ways that they do that. Absolutely, and well, that's a good transition to the running backs here because I think we saw Clifford wear down a little bit, and he's a guy who took more hits than any running back, not named Journey Brown at least. You know, if you look at – now this includes sacks, but Journey Brown had 129 carries – uh, Sean Clifford, including sacks, had 116 carries. And then the next next was Noah Kane with 84. Of course, Noah Kane had that stretch where he was hurt. Uh, but Sean Clifford, a lot of wear and tear last year, despite the fact that they had ridiculous running back depth, which will become even more ridiculous this year because we're looking at, okay, Journey yep. Brown's coming off of a monster finish to the season. He ended up with 890 yards, averaged 6.9 yards per carry, 12 touchdowns. He had... Over 100 yards in four of the last five games, including 200 yards against Memphis in the Cotton Bowl. Okay, and then you have Noah Kane, who looks like a guy who does better the more carries he gets, too. You know, he's a guy who uh, wore down Iowa. He had, under the radar, had 15 carries for 92 yards and two touchdowns in the Cotton Bowl, overshadowed by what Journey Brown did, but Noah Kane had a nice return to form after his injuries. And then you're talking about Devin Ford, who, you know, showed some flashes as a true freshman. You have Ricky Slade, who was a five-star recruit, uh, had a nice run in the Cotton Bowl. Still know there's some talent there, some athleticism there. And then you even talk about the two freshmen who are joining the fray, who we don't expect necessarily to see much, but they are highly touted guys in Keziah Holmes and Kayvon Lee. Six running backs on scholarship. All, well, five of them were highly touted recruits. Journey Brown was the least recruited of all of them, but he's a guy who once ran for 700 yards in high school and was a track star and clearly has shown that he can be a high-level running back as well. Another year of, we're going to be talking about the running backs a lot, but it's a good problem to have at least. It is. And, you know, Matt, I think that's what this all boils down to is how do you keep everyone happy? And they've done that. I mean, I how Jay Wan Sider <laughs> makes it work, I think it's as much a credit to him as it is the personalities in that room because this wouldn't work everywhere. But I do think you're seeing, and you're even starting to see it in some of the high schools too, and I know it's something that I wrote about last year up on The Athletic was, you know, a lot of these high school backs now, they're not against being part of a platoon because of the wear and tear, because everyone's goal is to not only get to the NFL, but to get that second contract in the NFL. 
And in order to do that, you got to stay as healthy as possible and limit the banging and the damage that you take. So I do think that's where this is a bit of a, you know, a paradigm shift here when you, you look in college football in general, and it's kind of finally hit Penn State. And, you know, as much as it was, okay, Saquon Barkley could do everything because he could, Miles Sanders could do everything as well. Like the backfield is not built like that anymore. And Matt, this could even be something too down the road. I don't see them necessarily shifting away from this, you know? I mean, these guys were recruited under the premise that they were going to work in a platoon. That's why they kept telling them, we want this to be like Georgia's backfield. You know, we want it to be like Georgia. Well, now you haven't hit that Georgia level yet, and who knows if they ever will, but you've got a lot of talented guys here, and I think, again, it's about finding roles for these players and what do they do best, how can they help you, and I I'll make the argument too, without spoiling the defense and special teams depth chart, but when you look at the return game, right, they like to get, you know, reserve running backs typically involved as kick returners. So Journey Brown was back there last year with KJ Hamler. Maybe we see a Devin Ford back next year to return kicks or Noah Kane or Ricky Slade. Maybe they get those guys involved back there that way. Um, But I do think there is something to getting Ricky Slade involved in the passing game. I, I think that's something that has to happen. I think it's something that very well could happen. He's certainly said he's open to being used in some type of other role. Now, I'm not saying switch him to a slot receiver, but you look at the deficiencies, as we mentioned, with the receiving core, and I think this is another way where you can kind of creatively work to get around one of those voids that you have. Yeah, and well, I, I kind of think we're going to see. I would consider Journey Brown and Noah King going into the next year almost like one A and one B, even though Journey Brown kind of emerges the guy down the stretch. We've mm-hmm. also seen the high potential Noah Kane has, and he's going to be a sophomore. He has a year under his belt. If he's healthy, we know what he can do, and we know he fills a specific role too as kind of a finisher. Oh yeah. Uh, so I, I'm going to be very curious to see like what the numbers look like next year. You know, Journey Brown was the only one who had over 500 rushing yards this year at 890 yards. Kane had 443. He would have had more than 500 if he didn't get hurt. Um, and then it was Clifford at 402, and then Ford at 294, and Slade at 214, Levis at 213. You would expect that they, I mean, they ran the ball 40 times a game this year. You would expect, I mean, that number could even go up a little bit, or they yeah. distribute the carries a little bit better with, with Clifford not running as much, you would think. It's just they have all of these options have such potential we you know not every run defense for as good as memphis is the run defense clearly a weakness but we know they have high potential um in the running game and that's also because of what they have coming back on the offensive line good transition Matt. smooth again Mm -hmm. so we we they basically have five starters coming back yeah because even though steven gonzalez who was we don't want to like downplay the departure of him he was is a key part of this offensive line for several years very good player but Mike Miranda started, I believe, eight games last year. Uh, yeah. you know, CJ Thorpe finished the year as a starter, but Miranda started the majority of the year, actually. So you look at, they basically have two starters coming back at guard, even though they're losing Gonzalez, and then the rest of the offensive line returns. Yeah, it really, to me, this is, and this is where, you know, Phil Troutwine really is going to have to make this thing work. And, I mean, I have every reason to believe he will, looking at his track record, but This is where it has to be an upgrade, right? You don't part ways with your offensive line coach knowing what you have coming back if you thought that this was going to be, you know, that you were getting as as much, that you were maximizing the talent that you had. You wouldn't have made that move 
I'm convinced you wouldn't have made that move um, if you felt like you did that last year. So clearly there's another level for this group to hit. And, you know, Rashid Walker, you get him back. I mean, I think that maybe that was one of the things that was kind of overlooked or understated last year. When you look at what they asked a then redshirt freshman left tackle to do. I mean, that is really, really difficult. You're talking about AJ Epineza. You're talking about Chase Young. I mean, guys like that saying, okay, Rashid Walker, go out there and deal with this, basically. I mean, that was he was put in a really, really tough, tough job. But the fact that he was able to make it through that, I mean, yeah, sure, there were some hiccups along the way, uh, but Chase Young did that to pretty much everybody. But now that he kind of makes it through the other side of that, such, you know, there was so much to be learned from that for him, I'm sure. But you look at kind of the collective depth that they have there, and Des Holmes, I think that was another kind of under-the-radar thing for this year. But having Holmes being able to add depth for you at both tackle spots is huge. And we'd see it where, you know, they'd bring Des Holmes in for a series here and there to spell Rashid Walker. We'd see him late in games sometimes for Will Fries at right tackle. So you've got a guy who legitimately they feel like they could plug in if they had to and win games with. That is a luxury. So now you're talking, okay, if for some reason, you know, Walker gets banged up or if some reason Will Fries gets banged up, you already know what that contingency plan looks like, and you're, you don't have to shuffle everybody else around to get there. Keep in mind, too, that Fries has played left and right tackle before, so you do have some options there um, should an injury arise. But the thing last year was all about Rashid Walker has been built to be this key piece, this left tackle. He's more comfortable on the left side. That's where they're going to keep him. But to me, Matt, he's one of the brightest spots when you look at this offensive line and you look at the future of it. And that's why I'm curious to talk to Troutwine about guys like Walker, because I think you've got a big piece to the future of this offense that really isn't even in his prime yet. And I'm also interested to see another name here is Caden Wallace, who was a guy mm-hmm. who we saw a little bit as a freshman. And then they ended up pulling back. Didn't, there was really no need not to redshirt him. I mean, he, he wasn't going to start. Um, so I wouldn't read anything to, Oh, they decided not to red or they decided to redshirt him after initially playing him. I think the fact that he played early was, well, they clearly liked this guy. Yeah. It, and he hit a bit of a I, freshman I'm, wall. That was, yeah. you know, and they said it was just kind of the learning curve. But it was also kind of the, you know, the analysis of, well, what are you going to get by playing? Why it, are you we know? doing this? Yeah, like, yeah. okay, you put him in for extra points, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, but but undoubtedly that is, he's going to be really fun to watch down the road too. Because Holmes and Wallace, it's like, okay, how, you know, how much will they play this year? Can they push Will Fries? Will we see any more rotating like we saw with the guards with Miranda and Thorpe this year, it wouldn't be shocking to see one of those guys maybe do that with fries or, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we saw that a little bit with Holmes on, on uh, with, with Walker even this year. So uh, it's, it's at least encouraging. There's, there's options, which again is something that we haven't talked about a lot. They, they haven't, you know, they, they clearly improved in, in run blocking for a good chunk of the year. Pass blocking is still a work in progress. And, you know, it's not all on the offensive line. You know, Sean Clifford was a young quarterback who made mistakes with decisions that that's going to happen. Um, and so, but I, I, we say it every year. I, I think they're going to take a step forward. You know, I think they made a strong hire with offensive line coach with Troutwine. I think the interior should be really, really good. Michael Menick coming back is a big, big, big positive. Cause he's a guy who can be an all big 10 player. Uh, I think CJ Thorpe could be an all big 10 player in 2020. Mm-hmm. So, Again, I don't think this is going to be the best offensive line in the country. 
<laughs> but I think you're saying be, this is the year, Matt. This, this, I think they this could be one of one of the better offensive lines in the Big Ten. Is that fair? I think I they think need to fair. be because yeah. they could run the ball really, really well next year. And I think again, Matt, like you look at how they've recruited this offensive line, and that's why it has to be frustrating for fans when you look at you know you see the production being up and down, especially like you mentioned um, the pass protection. It's it has to be better, and that's why you brought in Phil Troutwine because there's another level that this line has to hit. Um, and yes, they collectively, to me, at least to the untrained eye here, looked better last year. But when you look at how they've recruited this position, there's got to be more there. And I think, too, what a luxury for them that you were able to play Miranda and Thorpe this year, both of those guys. Uh, yes. On my depth chart, I'm putting Miranda at left guard and putting Thorpe as the starter at right. Um you, they're interchangeable. Maybe they'll sw- flip them around. Who knows? Uh, but I think the other really, really big part of this line is the fact that you're getting Michael Mennett back for a fifth year. You don't have to go through some kind of transition at center because that would have been really interesting too. You know, I think what they probably would have done then is maybe moved Miranda over to center. Then you've got to plug somebody in at one of the guard spots, potentially left guard. So by getting Mennett back for uh, a senior year, you really help yourself there and Keep in mind, too, uh, his backup, well, one of his backups, because Miranda would be the next in line, but behind him is Juice Scruggs, and Scruggs missed spring ball last year after being in a car accident. So he then, he did practice throughout the year and was on some of the road trips, but then they shut him down toward the end of the season. So you have to assume he's back to full health or close to it. Uh, The fact that he was able to go through practices last year was certainly a good sign, but there's somebody else who... You know, it's kind of forgotten about because of what happened. Um, but now you, you say, okay, if you get him back for spring brawl, you know, what are those, what kind of strides can he make over the spring, over the summer? Because again, Matt, to keep spinning this thing forward, if you look at 2021, you're going to have a new center, right? So what do you do with that? Is that where Juice Scruggs is able to step in? Or do you kind of move some other guys around? So that's certainly part of it. And let's not forget, Anthony Wigan, the Lackawanna College transfer, he redshirted last year. I mean, that was, you had a luxury there that you were able to kind of put him on hold, let him develop more in the weight room. So now I think of him as a depth option this year, but I mean, who knows if somebody gets hurt, of course, that can always change things. Uh, But you've got options with Wiggins at least. And then you just signed a bunch of freshman linemen as well. But we know, Matt, to expect to get contributions out of a true freshman is near impossible but especially this year they don't need it when they right have but you, you have it you have it for down the road which is like yes. the good thing they've recruited really well to kind of keep restocking that depth but yeah i think matt for this line it's now or never uh it's got to be to make the transition that you made the coaching change you know to have the talent that you have coming back it's got to continue to improve well they basically have what Basically, like nine returning starters in that ballpark. Uh, yeah. You, whatever you want to consider the guards, you know, Daniel George really ended the season as the starter. So he's kind of a returning starter at wide receiver. Either way, it's a ton of returning experience, but three new coaches, mm-hmm. uh, even though we're, you know, pretty optimistic about, you know, what Kirk Schrock is going to do with the offense. It's a great hire. Uh, but, you know, wide receiving core is going to be the biggest question of the offseason. When a year ago, we didn't expect that. We, Thought we didn't 
there wasn't a lot of talk about KJ Hamler leaving after his redshirt sophomore year. We knew it was a possibility, but a year ago, there wasn't a lot of talk about that. And of course we expected Justin Shorter to kind of, Oh, well, he was the five-star recruit. It's time for him to take a next step. So the receiving course certainly looks much different and much more problematic than maybe we thought, you know, before last year. Uh, so that's going to turn into the fascinating storyline of the off season. And uh, so the Audrey's, First look, Penn State 2020 offensive depth chart is up on the athletic. And if you're listening to this after Tuesday, the defensive depth chart is going to be up Wednesday. We will talk about that on Zero State next week. And, man, uh, but the little, little bit go, of Audrey, news, a little bit of news yes. here um, coming through on the tweet machine. Uh, so this morning, Daniel George, so quick uh, defensive. Daniel or Joseph. Daniel Joseph, I'm sorry. Jeez, no. Let's <laughs> Daniel Joseph, to be clear. Pump the brakes. Yeah, Daniel Joseph, uh, the reserve defensive end, did enter the transfer portal today on Tuesday. He's seeking a graduate transfer. So a little bit of news there, um, kind of the first. Not little, totally shocking based on the depth chart. Not at all. Not shocking at all, but a little bit of a transactional move there for you guys. So um, Daniel Joseph seeking a grad transfer joins Hunter Kelly in the portal, reserve offensive lineman, who's also seeking a graduate transfer. And of course, notably, joins Justin Shorter in the portal, who still has not announced where he's headed. Uh, so we shall see. But yeah, Matt, that's just a little bit of news here coming through on the old Twitter machine. Well, that sets us up for next week because we will talk more about the defensive ends, which, you know, it's you know shame to lose anybody, but, uh, you know, they, they have certainly have depth and options at defensive end. It's also... As of Tuesday, we are past the NFL draft deadline, mm-hmm. and we have not heard anything one way or the other from Shaka Tony, which leads us to at least assume that Shaka Tony will be a Penn State Nittany Lion in 2020. Have to think so, Matt. Um, <laughs> I mean, I just – this whole guys who release statements that they're coming back and guys who don't, um, it's just – that's where we're at in college football now, I guess. So it kind of just makes it confusing because it's like, all right, is this guy going? Is this guy staying? Whatever, um, but have to think since he hasn't said that he's you know signed with an agent. Have to think that he plans to be here, but we'll see when the uh, NFL releases their official list of underclassmen uh, who are you know plan to to be draft eligible. So we'll, we'll have to see. But yeah, I think we're uh, I think we're at least past that first phase of the offseason. Well, so that'll do it here we again check out the offensive depth chart on the athletic please subscribe to the athletic please subscribe to dear old state on itunes rate review and subscribe please we appreciate everybody listening in and uh yeah again we'll be continuing these podcasts here in the off season uh the defensive depth chart will be up on the athletic on wednesday and gives us a key thing to talk about next week on dear old state though so, so thanks to everybody for listening thanks to audrey And uh, we'll see you next week on Dear Old State.